It's the start of the third week of the search for the missing remains of Starkey Swenson in Amro. Small teams of anthropology students from the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh carefully scrape layers of dirt from the floor of their deepening pits with trowels, inspecting the ground for any objects as they perform this careful work. They place the soil they remove in large buckets, which are gathered by other team members and brought to the sifting pile a task that has gotten more challenging as the bucket bearers must now weave between the many other excavation pits that dot the property. Even more students stand at the large screen sifters used to vigorously shake the dirt to separate out any small objects that may be contained within the clumps. It's challenging work in the early June heat, but the team has developed some level of muscle memory over the past weeks. To the side, In an expanse that has yet to be excavated, Dr. Jordan Karsten discusses the plan for the week with detectives from the Winnebago County Sheriff's Office. They pause frequently to assist the team in carrying buckets of soil or to clear brush from land that remains to be searched. Dan Joyce, the anthropologist, former museum director, and ground-penetrating radar expert, pushes his GPR unit, which resembles a plastic-clad lawnmower with no blade, back and forth across the area that remains to be scanned. He moves methodically, marking his path, in order to make it possible to flag sections containing anomalies once he has processed his data overnight. The remaining days in the early summer dig season are counting down, yet there's much work still to do. Despite the first two weeks of excavation yielding no human remains, There is a common, possibly even growing, belief among nearly all involved that this Amro field is the place, the spot where Starkey Swenson was unceremoniously laid to rest, hidden, until he is one day found and returned to those who have held him dear over all these years. I'm Matt Hiskis, and this is Cold Case Frozen Tundra, Episode 10, The Search, Part 3. Hello and welcome to Cold Case Frozen Tundra. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, your co-host along with Matt in this search for answers in the disappearance of Starkey Swenson. We're heading into this week, the last of three weeks scheduled for the Archaeological Field School, an excavation at the site with a handful of target locations identified for us to search. We also slated additional ground penetrating radar or GPR work to hopefully pinpoint additional targets. As I mentioned in our last episode recapping week two of the search, we've also begun to pivot our strategy from excavating only the specific spots identified through our use of GPR technology 
to expanding those pits across the entire site. Eventually, we plan to dig every square inch of the area, leaving no stone unturned in both the metaphorical and literal sense to remove all doubt of whether Starkey Swinson is or ever was at any point buried on this site. Yeah, you mentioned this shift in strategy earlier, and I wanted to follow up a little bit on that with you. While excavating the entire area is undoubtedly the single best method of conclusively answering questions about the property, it's also a significant amount of work and something that's not typically done in every location. I'm curious about the factors that led to this decision, which you made along with detectives and landowners. Did you decide to do this to make sure there wasn't anything being missed by the GPR, or is it more based on the items that have been found to this point and the belief that this is a significant location in the case? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of all that. I mean, the GPR is an incredibly helpful tool. We've seen that throughout this search where each target successfully resulted in finding something buried in the ground, whether it's, uh, you know, a boulder from the Ice Age, an unusual slurry of mud and dirt that was caused by flooding, water runoff, even maybe in some cases a tree that's fallen over and then the well that's left behind that's filled in with additional dirt. So there's no doubt in my mind that GPR is an effective tool, at least in pinpointing areas of disturbance in the soil. But it's also good for us to keep in mind that GPR and really any other form of technology used in this kind of underground detection or or remote sensing, it's, it's just a tool. Technologies offer clues for us as to what's buried in the ground. And maybe one day we'll develop a technology that can truly look into the earth and show what's buried there. But we don't have that kind of technology yet. Until then, when we're at a site that's of particular interest, the only way for us to get a definitive answer is to dig until we hit intact stratigraphy, which is those layers in the earth that we can clearly see. And that tells us that that area has never been disturbed. Okay. And so clearly the decision has been made that this Amro property is of significant enough interest to warrant a large-scale excavation of the entire area. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as we head into the third week of digging, we've already found some items on the site that we think are of interest. Some of them have been determined to be less likely to be related to the case as we've looked into them further, like the possible metal cap and some of that tarp-like material, which ended up probably being part of an old conveyor belt, which is a material that around here is commonly used in farming and gardening applications. But others, like the possible car headlight fragment that we found last week, are very interesting to us. I mean, it requires more investigation for us to determine whether it can be traced to anything related to the era, especially, you know, around the early 1980s or just before, or even to John Andrews' vehicle. But in the meantime, it's very intriguing that we have a potential auto headlight located in the area of interest, just pushed into the ground within, you know, six inches from the surface a long ways from the road, at a site where the victim of a vehicle-involved murder may have been buried. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I'm hoping we'll be able to offer an update on this as the week's excavation progresses. Yeah, I hope so too. I'd also say that even more important than what we found so far is the general sense from everybody who's involved in the excavation that we're in the right place here. I mean, when you hear that John Andrews was seen gardening at night on this extremely remote property by the light of his car headlights, if you're at all like me, it immediately tells you that something strange is going on here. But when you talk to the members of the family who own the property, 
the ones who were around during the time and remember John spending time here in the 80s and 90s, it gives us an entirely new perspective to just how strange his behavior really was. You can see how puzzled they are by his nighttime return to the site and their personal disbelief that, you know, any gardening was ever done here. I've also had the opportunity to speak with members of Starkey's own family who've come by the site, as we've mentioned in the earlier episodes of this podcast, and they've expressed a very similar sentiment that we're in the right spot. They've, of course, been among the individuals who have paid the most attention to this story over the nearly 40 years. And while, of course, no one can be certain, I put some stock in their assessments and beliefs in this case. No one else currently involved in the case has been closer to it than Starkey's family. So I think that factors into our assessment of whether to move to a full-scale excavation here. And as you know, the detectives involved in the search are, as you'd expect, trained to never place any certainty on anything without irrefutable proof. Their skepticism is in part what makes them great at what they do. But I definitely think that they agree that this is a high-interest site, one that is worth a very thorough search. There are just too many facts that could support the theory of John Andrews bearing Starkey Swenson on this property to not give it the most in-depth search that we can provide. Yeah, I agree. And I've mentioned it before in earlier episodes, but being at the scene with the people who were involved in the events as they occurred really does add incredible value to the search and to our understanding of the story. There are so many bits that come out. Small details which have been reported to the initial investigators, but were filed away in their minds versus written in notes, or items that just never really became part of the trial or public record, but now they seem to cast a new light on the story. I remember, for instance, your call to me after visiting the Amro site to plan out the excavation, and you spoke with a number of people there. We'd already interviewed Gene at that time, who first told us about John Andrews' nighttime gardening. In our call, she recalled John spending time there in the 90s, but was not able to remember if he had been there earlier than that. It really was your visit to the site and the conversations with others that revealed John had been visiting the Amara property back in the 1980s. Yeah, that's right. It was also during some of my early visits that I learned that individuals remember seeing John doing his nighttime gardening around the time of August 13, 1983, which was the night of Starkey's murder. And that some of the other community members in the area have mentioned that they saw John Andrews covered in dirt when he was at the Drop Zone Bar on the night of August 13th. It's these types of details that, when combined with the facts we already know about the case, make a compelling argument for the property in Amro being, at minimum, a site that is worth excavating until there is no doubt as to whether Starkey Swenson was ever buried there. To me, it is certainly a very plausible theory, one that fits more closely with the facts than any other I've heard. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when you take into account the facts that we know for sure and the items that have been reported by those in the area, there's really no choice but to excavate fully. I mean, we know John Andrews was in two locations on the night of Starkey Swenson's murder. He was in Nina at Claire's house and he was in Amro, as he told the police. We only know of two places John is connected with in Amro. One's the drop zone bar, and then the other is the property owned by Jean and her family. We know, per John's statement to the police, that he was at the drop zone bar that night. 
that's also supported by people who have told us that they saw him there. But we also have witnesses who reported seeing him at Jean's property, at least around that night. We also know that at least some of the people who said they saw John at the drop zone bar that night said he was covered in dirt when he arrived. While we've been excavating at the site, we've also learned from the property owners that Jean's aunt and uncle would not allow anybody to enter the back portion of their property during the 80s and 90s. No one was allowed to hunt there, despite many community members and family friends requesting access. Children in the family, like Jean and her siblings, were not allowed to play back there. There were no family hikes or efforts to convert the land to be suitable for farming. No bonfires, no campouts, nothing. That part of the property was strictly off limits to everybody, with one exception. There was one person who was allowed nearly unlimited access to the back portion of the property during those years, and that was John Andrews. Yeah, the timeline of events and known facts do make a compelling case for the property being worthy of an exhaustive search. I remember being with you at the site when we learned that detail about the restricted access to the back portion of the property. I didn't know what to make of it at the time, and to be honest, I'm not sure what to make of it now. I do know, though, that I'm very interested in the results of the continuing excavation. I'll let you get back to prepping for the third week of the search. We'll get back together to provide an update on any new findings and your plan moving forward at the end of the week. It sounds good to me. Here at the Cold Case Frozen Thunder podcast, the only thing Matt and I love more than trying to solve a cold case is cracking open our own cold case of beer. Today's episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra is sponsored by Perrin Brewing Company. Based in West Michigan, one of the country's leading destinations for those who seek fine craft beer, Perrin Brewing, that's P-E-R-R-I-N, stands out due to their consistent use of the highest quality ingredients, their creative exploration of new tastes, and their outstanding year-round staples. Perrin's Black Ale has been a favorite of mine for several years. While it pours dark and has the hints of chocolate and coffee found in many stouts, the Black Ale drinks lighter than other beers and is great for any occasion. I've recently had a chance to try Perrin's 5910 IPA and is a fan of all India Pale Ales. I have to say that the 5910 is one of my all-time favorites. If you're into something even more bold, I also highly recommend Perrin's new Double Pay, Double IPA. Click the link in this episode's show notes, head to the Brands We Love section of our podcast website, or check out perrinbrewing.com for more information on Perrin beers, including a helpful beer finder tool. Try Perrin Brewing and experience liquid craftsmanship. Hello? How's it going? It's going pretty good. We're at the dig. It's going okay, but we've got no bones found, no human remains, nothing. So just still plodding along then, huh? Yeah, I mean, working to try to expand the areas we've dug, um, but we're making some good progress there. Okay, yeah, well, I hope we find something soon, but have you, have you heard anything back on that headlight? So we have a little bit. Mm-hmm. At least initially, the report for the damage that occurred to John Andrew's car was on the bottom of the Trans Am, not on the front end. Nothing and at so, all. 
there's nothing specific in terms of the front end being damaged in terms of damage to headlights. But, I mean, if you think about it, we know that John Andrews hits Swenson and his bicycle and eventually mm-hmm. hits a tree with the front of his Trans Am. It seems quite reasonable, at least, that some headlight damage would probably occur in such an event. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't believe that it said there was nothing in the police report on the front end at all. Um, yeah, and it's, it, to me, it's also pretty, uh, you know, kind of surprising. But at least according to what we know, there was damage done to the bottom of the Trans Am. And that's what Andrew said happened when he jumped over a curb uh, in his effort to help some girls with a flat tire. Yeah. And so it's going to be hard for us to match up, say, this headlight piece that we found and Andrew's Trans Am. We might not ever be able to do it. I think no matter what, it's at least suggestive that it could be Anders Trans Am because it seems quite reasonable that there must have been some headlight damage in, you know, that occurred during the event. Yeah. And I'll have to check on it too, because I think if if I remember right, there was like I think a decent amount of time. I'll have to check our records, but I think there's a bit of time between when the event occurred and when they actually took his car in. So, you know, we probably want to look into that too. Like if there's Maybe maybe that has something to do with the headlight or no damage being shown on the front at all. Yeah, true. I mean, he could have easily, you know, fixed a headlight, that's for sure. I checked our records of the case following that phone call and was able to confirm that there was, indeed, a length of time between the murder and when John's Trans Am was taken into impound at the crime lab. Over two months' time, in fact. While Starkey Swenson went missing on October 13th, it wasn't until late October that the police executed a search warrant and obtained John's vehicle. This certainly calls for speculation on my part, but it's at least within the realm of possibility that a simple job, like replacing a headlight, could be easily done during that time frame. However, removing scraped, gouged, or scuffed parts from the underside of the Trans Am, repairing or replacing them, may have proven a much taller order, both from a time and financial perspective. So we have found one other thing, and that is some metal that's coiled together, and it looks like it could be a brake line. Um, It may be a brake line from a bicycle, uh, it's really hard to say. I mean, back here, we we are finding a lot of metal and, you know, kind of garbage that's associated with this farm's operation. But this is at least something that we'll have to look into more. Oh, nice. Do you need me to look anything up right now or you guys got that? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll just have to, I think we have to kind of see what it even is in terms of, you know, how long it is, if it's even got the possibility of being a break, break line. All right. Well, I guess just uh, keep me posted, and good luck. Sounds good. See you. So, Dr. Karsten and I are back together. It's now the end of the third and final week of the excavation. Dr. Karsten, should we start by providing an update on the possible break line? Sure. So, I mean, we've taken a look at it, and to be honest, we're not totally sure what it is 
Could it be a brake clone from a bicycle? It could. Um, but it seems to also be a match for a, what could be part of a small engine, material that could be you know used on many different types of farm equipment. And so for the moment, you know, we're not totally sure how this piece of metal fits into our search. Okay. So maybe not quite as definitive as we were hoping, but yet another one of those things that is hanging out there. And as we wrap up our third week of the excavation may take a little looking into before we can conclusively say yes or no, but possibly not as interesting as initially thought. For sure. And so, I mean, at this point, we've excavated a huge amount of area, but relative to the area of interest, it's not very much. I mean, we've probably got an acre and a half to two acres of areas that we would consider to be like really, really of interest when it comes to the search for Starkey Swenson on the property in Omro. And out of that, we've probably actually excavated about 10%. And so we've got a lot more work to do. And and you've mentioned, and we've, of course, done a decent amount of talking here in the past week and really towards the end of our last podcast, too, about the transition to digging the entire site. So that clearly has an effect on, on what you can do during this excavation season and the time frame moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in this case where we're working within a class, we're basically out of time. Um, but we're going to try to organize more time at the site. And we will have groups of people come out and we'll continue to excavate. And our goal is to keep working until we finish excavating this entire site. Now, it's going to take some time and a lot of effort. And so... Is it something that we're going to finish in the next few weeks or even necessarily the next few months? No, probably not. Um, This is something that may take us many months, if not up to a year, um, to actually finish. But it's going to be worth putting such a thorough effort forward because we'll be able to walk away from this site saying, Starkey Swenson is there or he's not. And so... um, it's going to be a lot of work, but it's going to, I think it's the best option when it comes to, you know, kind of seeing this search through. And I think for you and for I, and, and I'm sure for everyone listening to this podcast, of course, our goal was within this three-week time frame to recover some remains or some other piece of evidence that gives us evidence of Starkey definitely having been buried there or still being buried there. And so while, while we're not able to provide that at this point, I think it's safe to say we've got quite a bit of work left moving forward that still continues to give us hope that we're in the right spot. Um, but Unfortunately, it's not something we're going to be able to just walk in and in three weeks' time, walk back out having answers. No, I think that the, the work that's required here, unfortunately, is going to take more than you know, the amount of time that we had in the three weeks. And that's sometimes how this kind of stuff goes. And so we've got to put that extra time in to be thorough and to make sure that we're doing the best job um, to try to bring this case to closure. 
And we're certainly going to continue to provide an update. And we still have another episode slated for next week where we will hopefully continue to have some developments here in the upcoming week before our um, next episode. However, we've also had another interesting wrinkle, which was really discovered when looking at the patterns of weather over the really the past decades and really the past century at the site. And that may actually impact the way the search has gone so far and how it will continue in the future. Yeah. So this past week, we ended up having one GPR target that Dan Joyce found for us. And it was, I mean, to, you know, to, to kind of put it bluntly, grave shaped in terms of its you know size. And while we excavated it, the soil was definitely disturbed um, right from the start, moving down. But we hit the water table within like a foot and a half. And Dan uh, was digging into some climatological data and was able to show that 1983 was fairly close to average in terms of precipitation for that year. But the last two years in the state of Wisconsin have been way above average, way, way, way above average in terms of precipitation. And so it's really likely that the water table at the time that John Andrews would have been, you know, digging a clandestine grave would have been considerably lower than it is today. And so there remains the possibility that Starkey Swenson could be in at least that location, um, you know, but that's today under the water table, but at the time would have been, you know, within the range of what you'd expect the clandestine grave to be in. And so we've got to do a little bit more work in that spot, maybe in terms of pumping out some water, um, using probes, this kind of thing, to really thoroughly investigate that location. And this climatological difference between 1983 and today is something that we're going to have to keep in mind as we continue to work at the site. Yeah, I mean, it it strikes me having heard about that sort of discovery in the climate over the past several years that we stopped several pits that we were digging when they reached the water level. And while, of course, there's varying degrees of interest in each pit, I mean, there's always a possibility that each one may have revealed something new had we gone just that little bit deeper which isn't always possible by hand when when you're reaching the water table and it's becoming filled with water. But um, now knowing this about the site, that may impact our results and and the strategy moving forward for sure. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of those spots that we stopped at the water table, you know, we had been digging deeper because the GPR told us there was an anomaly four feet down, let's say. And we hit the water table in some places at three feet. Well, in actuality, you know, we found intact stratigraphy before that three feet where we saw, you know, the topsoil layers of clay, um, you know, layers, you know, darker soil layers that, you know, show us that this area is not disturbed, but we're still attempting to reach the depth of the anomaly. Um, And so in those locations, I feel quite certain that we're not going to find Starkey Swenson because the stratigraphy is intact. But in these very rare locations where we get down to the water table and we see some disturbed stratigraphy, we really have to be aware of the fact that that layer was, and that level 
was probably not in the water uh, in 1983. And we're just going to have to keep that in mind as we continue the search, certainly. Okay. So this is obviously our recap episode from our third and final of the formal weeks of digging during this particular dig season at the site. But um, while we'll continue to provide an update on this case, what's sort of the plan for this particular site moving forward? Um, and, and what's the schedule looking like? The students and who are willing, many of them at least are willing to volunteer their time to come back and excavate. And so we plan to be back there throughout the summer and we're going to keep it going. And then in the fall, my plan is to offer some in, uh, basically, uh, an additional class that will allow us to continue to work out there up until the winter. And so hopefully, um, between now and the time that, you know, the season changes into winter, hopefully we'll be able to finish excavating at the site. If not, we'll get close and we'll finish it in the spring. Okay. So should we end maybe this recap here by doing a quick rundown of once again, the items that were uncovered during these three weeks of digging and maybe just kind of discussing where they stand now, what our level of interest is in them currently. Of course, knowing that nearly everything until completely confirmed, not evidence is treated as evidence, but just our general level of interest in each and whether we, you know, think that may lend itself to the case at all. Sure. I think probably the most interesting is the piece of headlight that we found. Um, it's undoubtedly part of a headlight. It was found, you know, within the first six inches of dirt and it, uh, you know, the bevels and ridges in it make it consistent with headlights, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s in any kind of automobile. Um, so that being said, we can't say, oh, this is, you know, a 1973 Pontiac Firebird Trans Am. We can't say that at all. But it is consistent with a car of that era. And it's a small, small piece of, of headlight. Um, beyond that, we can't say much. Now, we would expect John Andrew's car to have had damage to it. And so could it have been part of his car that potentially broke off there when he pulled down into this area? Definitely. Um, we, I think supporting that is the fact that we haven't found anything else automotive in that area at all. Um, and it wasn't really buried on purpose to a, to a depth. It was sitting close to the surface, you know, within the top six inches of soil. But other than that, we don't know. And so we'll have to continue to look into it. That to me is probably the most interesting thing we found in the dig. We also found the metal cap we talked about that we thought was a bicycle part. It may still be a bicycle part. Uh, it just in terms of being a pedal dust cap, it does not appear to be Starkey Swenson's bicycle. Um, we also found some pieces of what appeared to be tarp. It looks like that's probably conveyor belt from local paper mills that were used by folks for gardening. And so, Although kind of piques your interest, it, we're not really sure how uh, interesting that stuff really is, at least today. Um, and then we've got this bike or excuse me, brake line that we found. Um, exactly what it means right now, we don't know, but it appears like it's probably part of farm equipment. And so that's where we're at in terms of actual finds from the dig. Okay. And I think in our last episode, we mentioned that 
we learned, or I should say you and your team learned while, while engaging in the excavation last week that, in fact, there had been a bicycle found in the past near the pond on the property. Has there been any update on that at all? Or I, I know it was thrown away and there may be limited information available on that. Have we learned any more on that? Oh, yeah. I think that no matter what, that's going to be really, really limited information. But as far as I know, we know nothing new about that bicycle that was found near the pond. So it sounds like there's a few bits of information that are still outstanding, but kind of as we expected, aren't going to be resolved necessarily during the three weeks of dig season. Um, We're going to continue working to update this case over the next week, potentially making the plan both for this site as well as some other possible avenues that may lead to information on the Starkey Swenson case over the next week. And hopefully also we'll hear back on some of the information that we're hoping to gather regarding these pieces of evidence we've potentially dug up. But again, that's that's a process that takes some time. And unfortunately, we need to wait for that to result and come back and hopefully lead us to some answers. Yeah, I mean, we're done with the three-week dig season. But at this point, we need to kind of take some time to think about the, way, the steps forward um, and what we want to do. And so I think that in next week's episode, we can really kind of, in a lot of ways, provide a summary to all of this and, you know, and our steps forward um, in terms of trying to resolve this case as Starkey Swenson. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I think we can definitely use, and certainly you and your students who have been spending every day in the heat digging, it's time for a reset, putting our heads together. I'm sure the detectives and the others involved are doing the same. And it's, it's really a little bit of a time to, to reset after that dig, figure out where it's led us and where we're headed now. I'm telling you, it's time for one of those delicious parent beers and to like rest my aching back and arms. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, give it a little bit of time to let some things percolate. Yeah, it sounds good to me. I, I hope we'll have more uh, when we get back next week. But until then, I appreciate you joining me after a long week of digging. And, uh, you know, let's let's keep up the work and hopefully find some answers. Oh, for sure. See you. If you want to know more about the Starkey Swenson story, We highly recommend you visit our website or follow our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for additional information, behind-the-scenes footage, and more. We will continue to post insider content and updates as this real-time investigation progresses. You can find our social media pages using the links on our website or by searching for us on our social media platforms. We'd like to take a moment to thank those who helped us compile information on this case including the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department, Newspapers.com, and individual citizens who've shared their knowledge. Our theme music was created by Mario Cole 06 and is available for download from Pixabay.